Hello and welcome to part eight of the TSSI series. And we have a small panel so far here today. We have got uh, Lexi. You want to say hi, Lexi? Hey, hey. Hi, Lexi. Very polite. And yes. Derek from Symptomatic Redness. Say something. Yo. Okay. So last week we did all of chapter six. And when I did the re-edit for the podcast, I realized that the last section was so incomprehensible, mainly because of my lack of understanding of certain parts. So I thought we'd give them a little rejig today and just go through it nice and quick. I think part of it is that this is a genuine kind of weird thing in Marxist theory. And it's sort of the focal point of a lot of the complaints and critique. And so I'm glad we're going to get to uh, look at it again. Okay, I've given it a good hard thrashing during this week and I've been emailing Andrew and in the process of actually writing down my thoughts and making my question clear, I fully understood what the problem was and I got Andrew at least to confirm it. So if if we can, we'll just drop in. It's into this quote here and what Andrew says in response. It's these two guys here. Okay, so let me read this again. This is what Marx was saying. I think this is from Capital Volume 3, Chapter 9. Okay, here says Marx. It was originally assumed that the cost price of a commodity equaled the value of the commodities consumed in its production. Okay, so this is from, in, in Volume 1 of, of Capital, Marx decides that values and prices are going to be the same. Everything sells at its price. At this point, Marx is talking about how when you get rid of that, some bad shit happens. Okay. Yeah. And le let's just recall that. A commodity's cost price equals the sum of value transferred or the constant capital portion of its value plus the variable capital. Yes. So that is the cost, the cost of that of that product. Okay, so so here he goes. But just as the price of production of a commodity can diverge from its value, okay, so the price of production, remember, that's kind of like the value of the product plus the average rate of profit, okay, can diverge from its value. So can the cost price of a commodity, in, wh in which case the price of production of other commodities is involved. It is necessary to bear in mind this modified significance of the cost price and therefore to bear in mind too that if the cost price of a commodity is equated with the value of the means of production used up in producing it, it's always possible to go wrong. So here's what Marx is saying here. He's saying that like, I'm going to make some shoes here right now always with my shoes. I got some leather. I've bought some leather for my shoes. That's one of the inputs into the cost price. Yeah. I've got labor and I've got my raw materials. But my leather that I bought, they are, are being sold at a price that's different to their value. Okay. So that so we must be careful that we're we're not saying that it's the value of constant capital that's going to transfer. It's the price of constant capital. So it's the price kind of form of value, okay? So that's what you have to get right. And let's let's say that you didn't have the price. What you'd have to do is have one system with values and one system with prices. And then they go and get all fucked up. They just go off on their own in two different directions. Does that clear it up? Have I said that correctly for people? That makes sense. I like how Kleiman puts it where he's showing Borkovich acting as if this is Marx admitting his mistake. Haha, -ha, we caught him. He knows he's fucked up. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that was transparently. That's a terrible, uncharitable reading. And what he's doing is being like, all right, I've been building my handy little model based off of basically bourgeois methodology. What we're going to do is relax one of these axiomatic assumptions that I was helping to build the model. When you do that, you got to watch out that you're doing it correctly. That's kind of what he's saying. <sighs> yeah. Right. That makes sense. I mean, it's also whenever you have a theoretical model and you say you have to you have to bend part of it to comport it for reality, you have to be very correct, careful on how you bend it. This is extremely important because, you know, you are you are a capitalist, right? When you go and you buy your raw materials, what are you paying for them? You're paying money. You're not giving them some kind of abstract, socially necessary, average labor <laughs> token. You're giving them money. You don't care about whether it's cheap or whether it's dear. You know, mm. you, you're buying it with, with money. The other thing is like that Shrafians and the like, they take that paragraph there 
And they interpret that as Mark saying, oh, look, the transformation problem doesn't work. They literally say Mark's owned up to the error in the transformation problem. That's like literally what I've read a paper saying. How so the hell do you get that's that from a, that? That's a very, very dodgy interpretation. One, Mark's didn't know it's, what the transformation, the, the transformation problem would have been because it wasn't even formulated in his lifetime. So the idea it, that No, it was. Was it? No, it was, Derek. The transformation problem was like pre-Marx, and that was like the greatest Wait. problem with classical economics prior to Marx, that they could not understand why the winemaker would get a higher price for his labor than a baker would get. And this was one of the things that Marx actually solved. The transformation problem, that's what used to be called the transformation problem back in the day. And then it subsequently kind of morphed into oh, Marx's transformation problem doesn't work. I was about to say, like, but that's a, like, that's just, to me, that's an equivocation of problems because, because the transformation problem in classical economics isn't the same as the transformation problem people are accusing Marx of. Well, they're fairly similar because Marx's solution for it was this idea that there is value and there is price. And the modern interpretation of his showed that there was an error there if you value them simultaneously. And they say, look, his transformation of values into price fucks up. It's like a problem with Marx's solution to the transformation problem. It's probably yeah. what it should be called, but it, they just get rolled up into one. Well, it's a square rectangles thing, right? Like Marx is one of the last significant theorists working in the classical political economy tradition. This is a problem with the classical political economy tradition. Marx tries to solve this in the classical political economy tradition and whether he succeeds or fails basically tells you how you feel about the classical political economy tradition. Can I just read this paragraph here? What follows from all of this is that commodities have a single cost price. There's no separate cost price that depends upon the values of the means of production and subsistence. Indeed, Marx seems invariably to have, have referred to the cost price, never separate cost prices. Moreover, Alejandro Ramos, so this is the guy that used to be a single system or a, a simultaneous to move over to the temporal system. His innovation is the melt, is to name the melt, or he called it the MEL. Moreover, Alejandro Ramos has called attention to a passage left out of Capital Volume 3 by Engels, its editor, which expresses the value of a commodity as capital K plus S, as cost price plus surplus value, and the price of a commodity as capital K plus P, cost price plus profit. Okay, so one of them is the value and one of them is the price. Okay, where one has got surplus value and another has got profit in it. Mark's use of the same symbol capital K in both expressions makes it especially clear that values and prices share the same cost price. Basically, the same symbol, small k, appears throughout volume three as edited by Engels. That k does not represent a value magnitude in some places and a price magnitude in others is clear from the two passages that use k in connection with both the price and the value of the commodity. That's pretty slam dunk. My God, Engels, why did you cut that out? Well, he didn't anticipate such skullduggery. That's the guts of all of that. Like, so to me, that's very clear that the dual system, people think the dual system is needed because, you know, the value of a commodity and the price are different. OK, mm -hmm. but what Marx is trying to model is reality. He's not trying to model some vague value theory or a labor theory, uh, capitalism or something, whereby he's got a totally, a totally new price system that's just in labor hours that everybody should be using. He, he's not saying that. He's saying mm -hmm. there's one system, you know, you pay for things and money and you work, but there's this other representations of this value behind the scenes, which are causing prices to move in certain ways. Trying to say that Marx was a dual system theorist is idiotic, really. But I think, you know, maybe people went towards it. Some people did to get away from the, what they thought was a transformation problem. Because if you, if you split them apart, you don't have to worry about values and prices and how they interact. You just say, here's value short of price and here's price short of value. While in reality, Marx would say price and value are 
two expressions of the same reality. Mm. I mean, this all makes sense if you're afraid of the transformation problem for, for some reason. You want to just really get around it. And maybe there's some stuff about it I don't understand, stuff about commodity money, I'm not sure. But the way that Borkovich is putting this, or, or the way Kleiman is representing Borkovich is putting this, is really bizarre. And the idea that Sweezy could double down on this is, again, you got to wonder what Sweezy sees in Borkovich and, you know, the transformation problem must have really haunted his dreams in order for him to adopt something like Borkovich. I like the paragraph directly after the Marx quote. And yeah. there's a little something down the line afterwards, because I think it gets down to what Kleiman believes is a specific error people are making. Yeah. The reason why Marx's critics construe this passage as an admission of error is that they fail to distinguish between the value of means of production and the sum of value advanced as capital. In the absence of that distinction, he seems to be admitting that there is a difference between the value of capital and the quote price of capital, a difference that leads directly to two separate value and price systems. Yet, once we distinguish between the value of inputs and the value of capital, becomes apparent that the main function of the passage is to make the very distinction. Rather than admitting error, Marx is anticipating that readers might, quote, go wrong if they overlook the distinction, as they now have for almost a full century. Like, my, my problem, the whole reason why I got confused reading this passage is because of this word here I shall highlight. He says, the sum of value advances capital. I think that Andrew should have said the sum of money Hmm. would make it clearer. Why is that? I mean, why why would it make a difference? Yeah, well, I just think it makes it clearer. There's a reason why... Yeah. Does Kleiman think value and money are the same thing? No, they're totally different systems, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, they're both expressions of, of, the, same, of the same idea of, of value, aren't they? You have your labor value, your labor hours, and you've got price, and they're both but separate forms. fetishized. Right, like that's how we understand that, correct? Yeah, so money is value fetishized, that's so, why the fetish works, but it's also a representation of value, it's not just a fetish. Yeah, for, but for, forms of value are how do I put this? Fetishes are socially extremely real. That's what you mean by like the, the, the reification or thingification of, of an abstract that the abstract itself is a social relationship. And that's a fetish. If you say it's not merely a fetish, you actually completely undo Marx's theory, Tom. Yeah, right. yeah. No, no, it's, no. it's a question over yes, what a fetish yes, is. Yes, you do. Like, it's, it's, no, no, stop screaming. Stop screaming. It's, it's a question of what a fetish is. Tom is, Tom, and, and I think Tom was rolling with a kind of false consciousness fetish as okay. opposed to like an ideology fetish. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah, but it's an expression. Like, you know, it's all, is that not chapter one where he's talking about how uh, I'm not being precise in my words here, Derek, so don't don't jump down my throat. But it's like that, you know, you have value and you've got two kind of ways of expressing this idea of value. One is the amount of labor time in it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying here. So when he says sum of value advances capital in the real world, you don't go with the other labor time value. You go with money. So well, when I was looking at the value and the value, I was just getting confused. That's all I'm, I'm trying to say put, there. Okay. I'm not going to put words in Kleiman's mouth, but I think the reason why he doesn't do that has to do with what I was talking about, the, fet the, the fetishization thing. But it would make more sense to lay readers. Like, yeah, I agree. It would. It, yeah. I mean, he clearly means the sum of value is, is, is as expressed in the sum of money that exists somewhere as capital. Yeah. It was literally that. That word is what was trolling me, you know. Okay. So we're, we're, we're good then. Yeah. I think we... Well, it's interesting. Just before we, we stop, here, here is actually where, remember I was saying that some people read it as saying that it was an error. Here is explicitly. I, you know, I actually read it in papers since by some other Sharafians, not just these guys. It was based on Borkovich claimed that in Chapter 9 of Capital, Volume 3, Marx recognized that his account of the value price transform contained an error. Sweezy seconded this claim in 42, citing the following passage. You know, that as evidence yeah. that Marx was aware of his error. Yeah, that's why I was throwing down on Sweezy. Like, you know, Sweezy is interesting. He's like the Marxist economist of his generation. But when you look back, so much of what he proposed was wrongheaded. And this is uh, 
perhaps part of why his methodology, I mean, I guess his methodology must have been wacky. And this just might be why. Something wacky anyway there. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> it's a goddamn conspiracy. <laughs> Without, Historical well, materialism is essentially a conspiracy. That's my that's my point. <laughs> I, you know, I think I think it's the ultimate alternate theory for people that recognize the same things that conspiracy theorists recognize. It's the ultimate alternative. It's the ultimate like nope. People are actually not trying to do this, but it's happening anyway. So now we got chapter seven, which is the falling rate of profit controversy. Um, woo woo. woo, woo. We, this, this chapter is quite long. It starts on page 113 and goes all the way to page 130, 37. And it's got the grand total of one, two, three, four, <laughs> five, five hardcore tables in here. Where's a manual on oh, a day shit. like this when you need it? So does that mean we're going to table the tables for a manual? I think so. We yeah. will table them for the table master. Okay, the, the falling rate of controversy, profit, uh, profit controversy. Okay, so uh, this is basically what we've been building up to so far in all of this stuff that we've been doing is we've been trying to show that essentially the simultaneous valuing of inputs and outputs gets rid of any need for value and re results in physicalism. And what that would imply, if we think about it, that if you just have physicalism, so if you're just using physical outputs as measuring your profit, your rate of profit, if you're getting more productive, you'll be producing more for the same amount of effort, you know, so you'll be producing more output per unit input. So you're in a physical sense, your rate of profit should be going up. So any good introduction of new technology that increases your productivity would just you know, as a matter of course, lead to an increase in your physicalist rate of profit. Okay. Now, what we spent the last five, six chapters attacking is, is that simultaneous approach. And we've come to the conclusion that that's wrong-headed. Okay. And that is not what Marx is saying. And it messes everything up. So the theorems that were proved about the falling rate of profit was a big famous one by this guy called Akishio. And he was uh, one of these simultaneous dudes. So his theorems have, a, have an essentially physicalist approach. But what we're going to basically go at an attack now is that once you get rid of the simultaneous approach, that whole edifice of showing that productivity can cause the rate of profit to fall, that all falls apart. Uh, I just want to throw in a note about Okishio. Um, Nobuo Okishio was a pretty big deal. Uh, he was elected the president of the Japan Association of Economics and Econometrics. He was responsible for, we might not like him that much, but in addition to this, he created something that would, that would later be called the fundamental Marxian theorem or the Marxian fundamental theorem, which was, you know, this attempt to get around Marx's formulations and reformulate Marx's theory of exploitation and the exploitation theory of profit, which we're going to get into uh, later in the book. Actually, he was a he was a well-respected Japanese economist. Like like all of these, like most of the main people that are famous, you know, they're all fairly respected, even though they're wrong. That's you know. Oh yeah, and whether it's nothing easier really... or Kisho, Brenner, Romer. Well, you know, take your pick. Brenner's the guy that like in that list, I think I respect the most. And again, Kleiman turns to Brenner here. This is, you know, not his best moment. I, I just want to read this. Robert Brenner in 1998, the noted Marxist historian was able to dispose of the law of the tendency of the falling rate of profit in a single footnote of a 265 page work on economic crisis and stagnation. He simply invoked the Okishio theorem and for good measure, common sense. Marx's theory of the fall of the rate of profit flies in the face of common sense for if, as Marx himself seemed to take for granted, capitalists adopt technical changes that raise their own rate of profit, it seems intuitively obvious that the ultimate result of their innovation can only be to raise the average rate of profit. Formal proofs of this result can be found in Anno Kishio as well as in J. Romer. So, again, if there was any doubt 
that Robert Brenner was an analytical Marxist. He carries all the same Shroffian uh, expectations that Marx is just, you know, a, like an incoherent crock into his work, despite the fact that he does fabulous work. And let that be a, uh, let, let him be an example for people that think that, you know, if, if one major part of someone's work is wrong, then they can't do anything uh, relevant. That's, that's a decent contribution. Brenner's economic history and even, you know, the way he tried to model the change in agrarian economies, that's all pretty valuable stuff. However, wow, dead wrong. Just to mention about where he talks about common sense, I really love this Marx quote. I put it as a cover on a on an episode from a couple of years ago, but it's here it is. I'll put it on the screen there. All science would be superfluous if the outward appearance and the essence of things directly coincided. That's, uh, you know, only Marx can come up with these goddamn quotes. That's one of the that's one of the things I was thinking when I was reading that. Although I, I do have to say that's a, a common Aristotelian kind of notion about science. And it's directly counter to the empiricist expectations that a lot of people have about science today. But it is a, you know, it is perhaps the first notion of science. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it, he's been heavily influenced and the idea is not his, but it's just a, an excellent yeah. way of encapsulating it. And I just put it in there because common sense, oh, in, when you get into technical things, is, is, a, is a bad thing to fall back on. No, it's an it's an it's an incredible piece of scientific philosophical wisdom that is readily ignored by almost everyone that fucking loves science today. You know, when we talk about formal material uh, materialism versus um, empiricist materialism, which is which is a fine point, but it matters in the studies of metaphysics, and that's formal materialism. And it's it's really important to grasp because when people like say Alan Sokol say um, science is just common sense methodologized, I want to choke them to death. Uh, although much love to Alan SoCal, thanks for the for the, all the fun. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> gotta I mean, gotta admit I'm a fan of his. <laughs> yeah, I, no, yeah, I like that book except for his except for the part his. If you read the SoCal hoax book, he's good on everything else, but his first chapter defines science, and it made me throw the book across the room and kick it. Yeah, he's not doing any, he's not doing himself any favors there, but um, problematic fave Alan SoCal. Derek, do you, do you have a lot of rage? Yes. <laughs> Not only against the machine, but with, within other ragers as well. <laughs> rage against the humans. Rage um, is pretty much everything. Yeah. Rage against everything existing. Let me just read this quote here. This is from Robert Hannell. I went to interview Robin Hannell a few years ago and I was so tired. I couldn't do the interview and I had oh, no. to like cancel it with him and he never responded to me again. So oh. <laughs> if you're listening, Robert, this one's for you. Robin, it's Robin, isn't it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so got his name wrong. Well, he's definitely not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> the most, okay. The most recent such dismissal as of this writing is that of Hanel, a radical economist. He's a guy who came up with participatory economics with the guy who ran oh, Zinesh. Michael Albert. Michael Albert. Them two boys together did participatory in economics. He's so, really shooting himself in the foot by not coming on the foremost Marxist uh, science podcast. Goddamn straight, Lexi, you tell him. So here's a quote. Despite a number of attempts by diehard Marxists, that's us lads, during the 1970s and 1980s, to rescue the falling rate of profit crisis theory from being relegated to the dustbin of history by the Okisho theorem, by the end of the century, virtually all open-minded political economists recognized that this supposed internal contradiction within capitalism had been nothing more than a lengthy intellectual red herring. There you go. So like, the thing is, if, if the simultaneous were right, they would be right. But uh, I don't think they are. The reason that he's doing this is just to show how totally hegemonic within so-called radical theory that technical change can't cause the rate of profit to fall. Okay. The reason why the Okishio theorem appears to prove that rising productivity cannot lead to a falling rate of profit is, drumroll please, that it overlooks the price effect or more precisely spirits it away by valuing inputs and outputs simultaneously. What remains is only the physical effect. The rate of profit is transformed into a physical relationship 
the relation between the output and the input and the productivity increases, of course, do boost this quote rate of profit. So surprise, this is the thesis of this chapter is that when you do the simultaneism thing, dumb things happen. Throughout this book, we see again and again, 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 it's this simultaneous thing. There is nearly no other problem. And I am convinced that they adopt a simultaneous thing because they themselves like couldn't figure out what to do with the transformation problem. But my God, what technical debt they incur by bringing on board this methodology. Let's have a look here at what Borkovich had to say. Critiquing Marx's long-term rate of profit, in 1907, Borkovich wrote, it is wrong to connect a change in the rate of profit with a change in prices, since, as can be seen from our formulae, price movements affect capitalist production to the same degree as they do as outlay. In other words, falling prices cause costs as well as revenues to decline, and by the same percentage, thus the rate of profit remains unchanged when prices fall. Instead of treating this far-fetched conclusion as a sign of his simultaneous formulae were seriously flawed, Borkovich treated it as a solid fact about the real world and one that showed Marx had been wrong. This is not only disturbing but ironic as well, since earlier in the same essay, Borkovich had charged that it is characteristic of the author of Das Kapital to hold the nature of the object to which his theoretical construction refers responsible for the inner contradictions afflicting his construction. <laughs> yeah. Damn. That's a good one. So basically, Borkovich is saying the way Marx has constructed his theory is leading to all of these problems that he then blames on the reality of capital. <laughs> and ironically, <laughs> Borkovich's constructions of Marx's theory <laughs> is leading yeah. to a breakdown in how the theory said it works because of his misconstruction. So it's, inc it's inception. This is inception. Like, it is inception. This is level four. You know, when you're in the dream and the dream of the dream, dreamer's dream, I think. I think it's level four. And let's, skip, let's skip to that logic part I was talking about. Why the Okishio theorem has not been proved. And it's the section on Marx's equilibrium rate of profit. Just the very first part I like very much because it explains why these appeals to common sense are just uncharacteristically sloppy for a lot of these people. And I'm saying uncharacteristically, I'm being very charitable. You know, I know Brenner's pretty awesome. So, but let's look at Hanel here. I'm assuming Hanel knows this stuff. And he's, he says something pretty cool. This is a way, a good way to kind of folksily explain falling rate of profit. So um, the law of the tendency of the falling rate of profit has a seemingly paradoxical implication. Capitalists quote, kill the goose that was laying their golden eggs. <laughs> They introduce technological innovations that boost their individual rates of profit, but these innovations end up lowering the general rate of profit in the economy as a whole. It might seem intuitively obvious that that must mean the law of the tendency of the falling rate of profit is false, since, quote, what is true in the individual case must be true in the general case, end quote. I'm pretty sure that quote right there is, is not supposed to be a literal quote from Hanel because... This latter statement is known as the fallacy of composition. So anyone that's doing any kind of logic or just under, trying to understand systems argument in theory. general. Well, just, yeah, I mean. Just simple systems theory, you know, but, what's good but, for one. If everybody does it, it's bad for the system. But even people that are so hard-headed that they reject systems theory and they only obey what they're 1960s Cambridge textbook is going to tell them, or I should say Oxford because Cambridge is quite is much better on these things. You still have the fallacy of composition. You can't do that. You know, there's air on earth. Earth is in space. Therefore there's air in space. You know, like yeah. you, you have to divvy up these things in analysis and pay attention to that. I like that because this common sense that they're talking about is actually, if anything, against systematized common sense. There's some intuition it's yeah. appealing to, and it's and it. I think it's an ideological one more more than anything else. And I don't think that's what you know Brenner is trying to do because you know, again, Brenner's politics. I mean, he makes like the rest of the analytical Marxists make Robert Brenner look like Lenin. You know what I mean in terms of politics. So I don't think it's because he's so cool with capitalism. But someone smuggled that in there, and for some intuitive reasons, maybe it's a 
Maybe it's just faith in technology. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't like speculating about it like this. I like this one, this part here. It says, according to the, this is basically saying what Akisho's theorem is, is going to say. According to the theorem, Marx's premises actually lead to the contrary conclusion, okay, than what we normally think. Mm -hmm. Technological innovations which boost the innovating firm's rate of profit can never lower the equilibrium rate of profit. In most cases, they cause it to rise. Okay, that's a very important. He's highlighted here, never. Because we're going to find out later on that they can come up with little values that will show that it's going to cause it to lower. I think that there are some weird values as well which come mm. in. And if you can pick, if you can show one value where it's wrong, the, your theorem falls in its ass. You know, that's just the way it goes. I can't remember where it is in this chapter now, but definitely in some of the papers I've read recently. Yeah, I, I think there's some trepidation over whether this counts as a refutation because <laughs> it's sort of a question over whether what the assumptions are. And so there's, I don't know, I don't know who's saying what. Well, Someone, I think what somebody's in, mischaracterizing like how how the the proof works. Like you know, the, someone's mischaracterizing the the assumptions for rhetorical effect because I think yeah. it follows from its assumptions, but its assumptions are suspect. So anyway, I think we can get into that later. The focal point here is going to be around the interpretation of quote equilibrium rate of profit quote. Kleiman says on the top of 117, equilibrium rate of profit is simply equalized rate of profit, nothing more. We, we can get into, you know, Marx's quotes or anything, but I, th I think what, what's very important here is that there's a projection of what equilibrium means here that Kleiman insists is not what Marx means and that it could not be what Marx means because it leads to these insane results that have nothing to do with his intuitions or, or predictions. Or um, mechanism, I should say, not predictions. Okay, so there is some stuff here about the equilibrium rate of profit that we have dealt with previously, I think, in Chapter 6, where he was kind of building this up for this. So on 7.2.2, the Okishio theorem's equilibrium rate of profit, it's at the bottom of 117. So talking about why the, quote, equilibrium rate of profit is always higher than the original one, or equal to it if all the tech innovation occurs in a luxury-producing industry. The secret behind this result is that Okishio and Romer not only assume, along with Marx, that rates of profit are equalized after the innovation is adopted. They also take the liberty of equalizing the input and output prices. Their equilibrium, quote, rate of profit, in other words, is the simultaneous or static equilibrium rate, a rate that spirits away the disinflationary or deflationary effect of technological change. They're not only assuming what Marx has assumed that the rates of profit would equalize, but then they're doing simultaneism. Okay, they're doing simultaneism. They're doing simultaneous. Let, let's uh, let's read from the just the previous section. There's a quote from Marx when he talks about the law. Okay, okay. I think it's kind of important when we get to understanding this equilibrium rate. Okay, so no capitalist voluntarily applies a new method of production, no matter how much more productive it may be, if it reduces the rate of profit. But every new method of production of this kind makes commodities cheaper. He pockets the difference between their costs of production and the market price of other commodities, which are produced at higher production costs. So if he's able to produce them for cheaper, he'll sell them at the same price and make a bigger profit. But competition makes the new procedure universal and subjects it to the general law of value. A fall in the profit rate then ensues, first perhaps in this sphere of production and subsequently equalized with the others a fall that is completely independent of the capitalist will okay it's explicitly temporalist he's saying there yeah you know i want to i wanted to zoom in on the part where climate is saying that the okishio theorem is like it's logically inconsistent top of 118 it is true that if the rate of profit is equalized then firms in all industries obtain the average rate of profit and sell their output at its average price aka price of production as is shown in section 6.2, however, average and static equilibrium magnitudes are quite different things, conceptually and often quantitatively as well. So that's what we were building up to from uh, last time. There is therefore no mathematical reason why the average rate of profit must coincide with the static equilibrium rate, and no one has discovered any economic reason. It is therefore not permissible to infer the equality 
of input and output prices from Marx's assumption that the rate of profit is equalized. Thus, the Ocasio theorem fails to show that Marx's law of the tendency of falling rate of profit is logically invalid, inconsistent with his own premises, premises that do not include explicitly or implicitly the equalization of input and output prices. The theorem fails on its own terms as well. Starting from the premise that rates of profit are equalized after the technological innovation, what it supposedly deduces is a new static equilibrium rate of profit that exceeds the original one. That the new rate of profit is a static equilibrium rate is, in other words, a conclusion of the theorem, not a premise. This is quite clear from Romer's statement that what the theorem says is that after prices have readjusted to equilibrate the rate of profit again, the new rate of profit will be higher than the old rate. The readjustment of prices that causes the rate of profit to equilibrate is what Romer, faithfully following Marx in this regard, takes as his premise. That this leads to the establishment of a new static equilibrium rate of profit is clearly part of Romer's conclusion. But this feature of the conclusion does not follow from the premise that rates of profit are re-equilibriated. Nor does Romer show by other means that the newly equalized rate of profit must be his static equilibrium rate. The theorem is therefore logically invalid. Its conclusion has not been deduced, but only asserted. Derek, you haven't talked in a while. What do you think of that? I frankly don't. What I felt, honestly, is I couldn't get a grab enough on the Ocasio theorem to really talk about this as a point of critique for the law of tangential rate of profit the fall. I understand other critiques of it better, and I think Kleiman has actually fought them pretty clearly in the past. Particularly when you when you don't take the the law of the tangential rate of profit the fall to mean that there's going to be a clean immiseration theory, but I, I just don't really know what the Ocasio theorem has at stake here. And frankly, as we talk about it, my eyes glaze over, which is why I haven't said much because I would I would feel yeah. like I would have to know more than this present. I'm not saying that uh, that Kleiman is misrepresenting it at all, but I think I'd have to know more than than this presentation of it to really talk about if there's something that's not being included or whatnot. Otherwise, I just kind of have to take it at face value. You know, if you take a Marxian economics class, you derive the Okishio theorem. You know, you, you can do this. You can go through it step by step. It is logically consistent in this regard. I think what he's saying here is that, you know, he's assuming that after you have a new technology come in, he is saying that they're assuming afterwards you value outputs and inputs. And that's and, an assumption and <laughs> not a proof. So that's what he's is, trying to say. So I think some people would think that this is a dishonest way of putting it. And I was saying maybe someone was misrepresenting, but this is actually touching on a fairly important debate in philosophy over whether your methodological premises are um, up for debate. And so I think someone like Romer doesn't think that that premise is up for debate and someone like Kleiman does. And therefore it's a question of what's part of the logical form and what's part of the content of the argument. This is a, a Hegelian point about the limits of formal logic that as someone that really appreciates mathematical logic, I do think that this this actually touches on a kind of really interesting borderland here. So I understand the drive to say that it's dishonest. And I do think that in a certain milieu where these assumptions are the methodological assumptions that everyone is working with, you know, there's almost like a no real need to state them other than the model. So Kleiman, Kleiman is basically just saying that this assumption is so contentious. It's it's a missing premise in the argument where I think probably when they're deriving the theorem, do they consciously think that they must consciously be going through it like that? I think he's trying to make the statement that they just assume willy-nilly that it's equalized inputs and outputs. And he's saying, well, that's an assumption. Yeah. And you can't make a, say you you've proved something when you don't actually list your assumptions, especially if one of the assumptions means that it's logically incoherent with how Max set it out. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, th the thing is, you one does feel like there's an axiom at stake here that isn't stated as an axiom. Just a step, a step that's assumed that, you know, he's trying to say that Marx's theory of this is incoherent 
Right. You know, so they're not just saying that when we set up our system like this, th that this doesn't happen. They're saying that what Mark said was wrong. Well, Kleiman is saying that you're making the assumption you can just willy-nilly go there, and that's a logical step in and itself. Right. And that, yeah. that step needs to be proved. And, Mark, and Kleiman is saying, look, that step has never been proved. In fact, when you look at what Mark says, it's the opposite. You can't make that step. So it's so, it's a logical on its own basis. So so if you take this in terms of like formal Aristotelian logic, what you're doing is you're sneaking what should be a premise into an axiom so you don't have to prove it. Yes. Yeah. So as like as an economist, I can see why this economist is just a proof. Yeah, this is just a proof for an economist. Whereas as a you know, as someone who's thinking logically, like just from a more abstract standpoint, that does seem to be a smuggled in assumption. I was actually listening to an economist justify that this this methodological, not this particular, not the Akosha theorem, but I was doing some other research on um, some the way economists responded to like say Steve Keen's book and whatever. And uh, I think it was a guy named Chris Ald. Mm. He was talking about how this methodology of just taking assumptions that you know to be empirically false to generate a model and then finding out how that model could be true with empirically afterwards, even though the empirical assumption, the model assumptions are nuts, is basic across the board economic methodology. Yeah. And they do the and that the economists know that too. They they know the assumptions are not valid, but they're doing it to generate a simple model so that they could find something to then empirically test. And that makes sense, kind of, when you're doing something like econometrics. Kind of but when you're trying to disprove logical co consistency, that's a completely bad faith methodology. So it's taking a methodology that kind of makes sense in one field of study and applying it to another field of study in a way that it really doesn't make sense. So I guess I do have more to say about this than that. I have been studying up on it, but I just came away like going like, are, is this a problem of two completely different worlds not knowing how to talk to each other? Like the world of neoclassical economics versus classical economics and the goal shall never be met. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I guess I, I trust I trust that these people are stating their assumptions mathematically, if not, you know, otherwise. Yeah, but if they stayed in mathematics, but the thing is, part of the what's at stake here is not a mathematical argument. And that's... Well, right. The important thing here is really, you know, is it a representation of Marx? But I think at this point, like, it, it follows from its assumptions, but the assumptions don't model Marx. Right, but it's claiming that the assumptions do model Marx, and that's where that's where that fails. Well, is it? I, I was actually one of the things I was trying to look up because there seems to be a Marxist interpretation, like Marxist uses of the Akishio theorem, and like non-Marxist uses of the Akishio theorem, which confuses the crap out of me. Very interesting. So, uh, like, there's explicitly Straffian models, and then there's Marxist models. And then there's Marxist responses to the Marxist models. And I went through. Love it. So, so what I did to try to simplify this, because I have a book on this and I tried to read it and it made my eyes glaze over and I wanted to die because I frankly just did not have the Econometric skills to follow what the hell they were doing. <laughs> I went to the source of all universal knowledge, Wikipedia, read that and then read all the links. All right. And I still felt like I didn't understand it. Like, I didn't understand if there were multiple things going on here that I didn't really get. I know this is deduced from Marx. There, and I know there are Marxists. I used to, I interviewed a Marxist who really took this um, Akisho stuff seriously. But I don't know that all the people who use this actually, you know, are actually Marxists. As some of them are actually just using this as confirmation of bourgeois assumptions or neoclassical assumptions about the tendency of the rate of profit to fall being disproven. And thus we can move on to marginalism entirely. And so there just becomes this, this question for me is this an internal enemy or an external enemy for, <laughs> you know, for Marx? I think, and I think if, the, the next section gets into some of the internal critiques of Okishio. I mean, I really do feel like I remember Douglas Lane told me once that this book was completely friendly to as a first, as an introduction to Marx. And I'm rereading this. Yeah. That's a lie. <laughs> like if this is yeah. your introduction to, I mean, you can understand it maybe, but the thing is like, you can't really speak to what it's speaking to unless you're pretty grounded in a very niche subset of technical economics. 
And I, th I think that's, that's the maybe biggest problem of the book is you wonder who it's directed towards because it does some really good bare bones explication of Marx's theory and then goes to these high level debates that well, are. But I feel like it's a, it, it's, it is like a, like a, a summation of a person's life in defense of a certain element of, of Marx's theory, i.e. that it is internally consistent. And it is a summation of that work but that work is background in battles that most people just wouldn't understand. All right. You know, that's fair. As someone that makes a bunch of media basically for myself that other people like to happen to enjoy, I, I can, I can vibe with that. And yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, we, we, we understand, like my, I end up being obsessed over certain elements of Marxist theory that are kind of my own personal hobby horses at the same, you know, me and me and my love of the Creek of the Gertha program, for example. But, um, at the same token, like if I was to write a book about that, it could be the summation of my battles on the internet or in with other scholars or whatever. In this case, it's other scholars, but I don't know that it would necessarily even be a good introduction to the critique of the Goethe program. That's not a criticism of this. The criticism of that criticism of this book is, is not so much in the book itself, but the way people have tried to use it. Because I really don't know exactly what's at stake with the the Okishio theorem, except that I came away f feeling like it could be self consistent, but it can't be right about Marx, and it doesn't prove. And like you have to prove the decline, the, the the tangential decline rate of profits in another way. <laughs> like that's all yes. I got out of that. So um, like upon upon uh, reevaluating, it appears that there are two assumptions. It's the simultaneous valuation, but also the assumption of equilibrium rates of profit. So this is really like a contentious interpretation of Marx. Right. And those are both those to be fair. Those are both neoclassical assumptions, not classical assumptions. Right. So it feels like you're reading them back in the Marx anyway, but they are assumed in general in the field of economics right now. Yeah, exactly. So it's a question of what what's logic and what's content. <laughs> Let's move on to the simultaneous okay. critiques. I've, a few of these are coming from simultaneous Marxists. So these are trying to basically, from a sim simultaneous approach, rescue the long-term fallen rate of profit from the Okisha theorem. Okay. So these are people like Leibman, Foley, I think Sheikh has got some in here. Yeah, there's Akitani, also... Kind of physicists, um, Farjan and Mashover. Macover, yeah. I'm totally fucking up everyone's name. Far, yeah, Farjan and Macover. Thanks. Um, flying the flag for Europe here. Um, yeah. Now, okay, so let's have a look here. So, like, I think some of, basically these are, it seems to be like they just slightly changed the Kisho theorem's assumptions and then proved something slightly different. A number of works critiquing the Kisho theorem from within the simultaneous framework have shown that the physicalist rate of profit can fall for a variety of reasons. Yet these do works do not vindicate Marx's long-term falling rate of profit, since they do not show that a rate of profit can fall because labor becomes more productive. Okay, these are kind of ways to show that look, the physical rate of profit can fall, but due to other things, you know, right. they're trying to defend it by getting a bit of sellotape and a bit of blue tack and <laughs> you know. <laughs> The, the, this, tying a few bits of bailing twine and you know when i see theorists i respect do this it makes me very nervous yeah makes you think look there's a hole somewhere it should be the warning flag and you know it makes me wonder how much marxists are blind to this by necessity because we're reconstructing so degenerated as a research program we have to like kind of accept that okay some of these theories have a lot of problems and if we're going to re-articulate them we're going to have to like take some chances within frameworks where people are like, no, this is airtight. What are you talking about? But when it comes down to, you know, a logical proof, it just seems like it would be totally missing the point. And Andrew's quite clear on that. Yeah. I think he's crystal clear on what the problem is, you know, and he's attacking directly the problem, which these few guys d doesn't seem to be doing, you know, it, it, it kind of reminds me of my, I had a teacher in, in primary school and he was a bit of a wild man. You know, he's big playing traditional Irish music, but he, he used to drive this car where he literally had the doors, the driver's door and the passenger door were tied on with bailing twine. <laughs> this is what this these kind of hit me as, you know, it's a Ford Fiesta with some bailing twine. Like these guys here, Leibman and Foley, have altered the theorem's assumption that the real wage rate remains constant. If a real wage increases, 
happen to accompany technological progress, the physical rate of profit may fall. It's like, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? If we get more productive, but uh, there's a nuclear explosion goes off, our rate of profit might fall. You know, <laughs> who cares? That's one. It doesn't disprove anything. Let's try Alboro and Persky. Show that the physical rate of profit can fall if new machines are prematurely scrapped. Great one, lads. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. next? <laughs> I'm being a bit pithy here. Marx and Akisho assume that innovations are adopted voluntarily because they raise the innovator's rate of profit. Sheikh and Nakatani assume the opposite. Innovation in their models is a defensive response to cutthroat competition. The technologies that firms adopt are not those that yield the highest rate of profit given current prices and wages, but those which will best allow them to survive when cutthroat competition in the industry forces down the price of product. Adoption of such technologies can cause the physical rate of profit to fall. But since it falls because the new technologies are less, not more productive. What? Yeah. These models do not vindicate the long-term fall rate of profit. I mean, the, the, hold on a second. That, that doesn't it's make because, sense. It like, doesn't make I, any sense. I, I, Just but, move on. But you got to wonder, though, why doesn't that... Is, is Anwar Sheikh really, you know, not... People are grasping. They're grasping. No, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I really, I, when I see a sentence like that, I really got to check the source material. And I wonder if his new work is, is um, sensitive to the same objection or vulnerable to the same objection. I think his work has changed substantially over the years. You know, I think he was trying to come up with any type of a, a way to shore up Marx and probably came up with a load of yeah. different weird and wacky ways. You know, you just come up with one, you write a paper and then you go, ah, maybe not. Let's not be too harsh on them. But they don't seem like they're attacking the actual problem at all. Here's one that I was just reading when you and Derek were going on your, your discussion there about the previous bit. I was trying to read this, clear this one in my head. I'll read this bit out loud because this is the guys who I kind of want to study soon enough. So I just wanted to see what Andrew says about it here because I think he seems to give this some proper respect. Okay. It has often been suggested that the physicalist implications of the Akisho theorem can be circumvented by abandoning its and Marx's assumption that the rate of profit is equalized after technological innovation occurs. In the absence of a uniform rate of profit, supposedly anything can happen. Yet, yet Arjun and Makover, who studied this possibility very carefully, came to the contrary conclusion. There are definite laws governing the distribution of rates of profit. Since by rates of profit, they mean physicalist rates, the physically determined rates of the simultaneous dual system interpretation, Farjun and Makover concluded, the continued viability of capitalism will depend on the ability of continual innovation in the methods of production to keep pace with the merely quantitative expansion of the economy. In other words, physicalism implies that technological progress boosts profitability, whether or not the rate of profit is uniform. Hmm. Okay, so these dudes, Farjun and Macover, they took a statistical mechanics approach to economics and tried to model the economy using statistical mechanics techniques. So what they would say about the economy or a particular sector or whatever, that there's not like a rate of profit in a sector. There are loads of firms in a sector and they all have their own individual rate of profit, but they form a distribution. Okay. And what Farjun and Macover would say is that there are laws which influence the distribution of the rate of profit as opposed to the average, say. Their laws are about the distribution. Okay, now this bit here I find a little bit confusing. Since by rates of profit they meant physical rates, Farjun and Magor concluded the continued viability of capitalism will depend on the ability of continual innovation in the means of production to keep pace with the merely quantitative expansion of the economy. Now, hmm. I don't know about that. Like, why couldn't it just keep going forever with no productivity increases? I don't um, see why. Well, it, what, what, can, can, can we say this in different language? So this is saying the continued viability of capitalism. So if capitalism is going to keep going, right. If, right? It's, going to, if, it's, if it's going to keep going. It'll depend on the ability to increase productivity, mm -hmm. to keep pace 
with the quantitative expansion of the economy. So the merely quantitative expansion of the economy is the vague phrase in question because if, so I would really need a lot more context to understand what the yeah. fuck's going on there. I mean, I, it, does, it does seem the continued viability of capitalism would depend on its ability to grow. Exactly. Production. I don't think that would be, but that merely quantitative is either superfluous verbiage or. Oh, okay. I think I know what he's saying. I think I know what he's saying. I think he's just saying that it just needs to expand to survive. That's yeah. all he's saying. But, I mean, yeah. that seems fine, but you know what, what is meant there by merely quantitative? And I mean, also, I would I would really doubt that Farjan and, and Makover or their followers, the people that are elaborating on their work, would agree with the <laughs> simultaneous dual system characterization. The thing that, you know, dual system, maybe, I don't know. The thing that really strikes me as hard to believe is that people that are afraid of averages, like regular economic averages in general, like the econophysicists, they're sort of allergic to this. They're like, oh, that's, that's, that's a garbage concept. There's no average. That these people would like then go and equalize input and output prices in equilibrium. You, you know, you know, like that, that is just like, a, that's un, that would be unfathomable to me. I think this is such a side note in such a long book. And I think we'll have to park it and say that, look, we're going to have to like study what Farjun and Macover did to even to figure out whether Andrew is correct here or not. I yeah. know that we have antagonist D1DZ is saying that and uh, here that there's a mistake in the book here that he's wrong. And I know antagonist is a kind of an expert in that work of Farjun and Macover. So fair enough, it could easily be a mistake here, but I don't think it, it really matters for the rest of the chapter. Yeah, much. yeah, but I, 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 all I wanted to point out about this is that you know we're going to be looking into this work later, so we're going to be able to tell for ourselves whether that's a fair representation. Because you know, in a lot of these characterizations, I'm thinking to myself, did this person really do that? And if Andrew doesn't like quote enough, you know, I'm I have some doubt. Like with Brenner, I, I know he's not. Yeah, I know I know he's representing Brenner fairly. Yeah, right. and and actually with Sweezy, he's weaponizing him fairly too. Yes. So like it does make me tend to think that that we can kind of trust him, but but when I look up certain things that seem highly inconsistent, I don't know if people's ideas have changed or what. So I th I think there's just decisions that they make in their models that Andrew believe logically are and mathematically are equivalent to physicalism, and that would be the contentious claim. And so I yeah. think we can move on from here. I, I think that Andrew would disagree with uh, Farjun and Macover's theory, but I think that he would definitely respect the theory as a work mm. of economics. Put it yeah. that way. I hope yeah. so. Chapter 7.3, physical determination of profitability, obvious or implausible. Mm, interesting. Now, so the physicalist notion that greater productivity must translate into greater profitability is, in general, the reason why that the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall is dismissed. So this isn't Schroffian and simultaneous Marxist specific, but policymakers, politicians, news media. And the point of this section is to show that this is not only not self-evident, but it's actually highly implausible. This is Kleiman, I think Kleiman really channeling Marx. This is like such a basic Marxian assumption. It drives me and kind honestly, of honestly, it's a basic Smithian and Ricardian assumption too. <laughs> like, yeah, um, I mean, the Whiggish notion of progress and science really like takes a hit when you look at stuff like this. And the th I guess it's because economics is ideologically important, but it's but it but it's model driven. Like, it's not like this is where your notions of what sciences really matter mm. because since it's model driven and ent almost entirely model driven. And yeah, like 80% of economics is actually empirical econometrics, to be frank, um, as it currently exists. But those empirical econometrics are, are based on assumptions that are being applied. And I actually was trying to argue with an economist about this because I was thinking about education theory. And this will make more sense in a second. And education theory, you know, thousands and thousands of papers being written on something like learning styles. Learning styles have been debunked in the primary literature for 20 years, but the application and modeling based off them are still so fundamental to educational theory that they just ignore that it's been debunked and continue producing papers with those as assumptions. And they do empirical research with that as the guiding model, even though 
the base axioms have been disproven in psychology. So this isn't even unique to economics. This is kind of structurally built into anything that's applied and is thinking that you can just go and find out the empirical observations of these paradigms and you don't go back and question the paradigms themselves. Now, I'm not saying that economists never question their paradigms, but like when they say something like 80% of economics is actually empirical, it's a common, um, common thing to as a response to Stephen King. They're not being false. It's just empiricism by itself is as good as the paradigms in which you are using to interpret your observations. It's as good as your as your model, you know. Right. You can have an empirics yeah. that back up your model, but it can still be a shitty model. You know, your model might be right sixty percent of the time. If you're a gambler trying to play roulette, you know, you're a billionaire. But when it comes to economic prediction, that might be next to useless or physics. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, my favorite example of this historically, Lexi, will make you understand this. If you were yeah. applying Ptolemaic ast astronomy until the 20th century, your prediction <laughs> accuracy was going to be higher than heliocentric astronomy. <laughs> Because the bad model had been empirically reified with all sorts of completely false oh ad hoc excuses that it was predictably more consistent than the true model was. That's pretty great. They had so many different extra ellipses and everything going on that it was right. better than like Newton. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. Wow. It was. It was more predictively accurate than than um, than trying to apply Newton, and you didn't fix that till the 20th century. That's so cool. Yeah. When you know that, it makes a lot of research paradigm failures make a lot more sense. <laughs> now, you know, the person who pointed it out to me, though, was actually Umberto Eco. He he wrote a book about about Whiggish notions in science and like medievalism and how like a, a lot of that Whiggish history causes you to miss it. Like some of those medieval paradigms that were false got so refined that they were predictively hyper accurate. And then he was using that to make a point about our paradigms, because sometimes we're just ad hoc refining a paradigm that's bad to the point that it looks like it's completely consistent because we keep on adding ad hoc assumptions. And we don't even realize we're right. doing it. That, that to me is like the beauty of, of Marx is that it's so, I think it's so stripped down. And all of the things that flow out of this yeah. really stripped down analysis is amazing. No, I mean, like nearly you everything. start with just commodities, really. I mean, like, yeah, that's and how value and, you know, and, and, and maybe workers and <laughs> workers and, yeah. and, and capitalists. And that's it. And everything flows out of it. So and yeah, it, even workers and capitalists, he doesn't define, actually. It's just kind of yeah. fascinating. He describes, but he doesn't define them. It's actually interesting when you deal with Marx, how few axioms there are. There are some, but they're not many. Yeah, I think when Grossman is defending Hayek's methodology in his book, and he's kind of praising this bourgeois method, a lot of people say Marx was simply critiquing. He wasn't trying to do it. He's not an economist. That's so, you know, that's a vulgar reading. He's just a critic. Like, they're really not doing justice to, like, how powerfully Marx wields what you might say are the master's tools. He makes such a good scientific theory using that bourgeois way of uh, spelling things out that it makes you think, hmm, maybe it doesn't matter <laughs> to the, the, the class nature of this kind of scientific inquiry if it works this well. Okay, let, well, we have a look at this first table. I think this table is fairly easy. You want me to break it down? Let's break it down, motherfuckers. Right. All right. Table 7.1, the first of many beautiful tables. So we're going to start out here with a one-sector core and economy, and we're going to be plowing in all our capital back in, okay? Everything's going to get used up, I think, either in wages. Let me see. Is there any wages even in this one? Okay, yeah, so there's no wages. Farm workers and farm owners don't even eat anything. They're just sitting there planting each year, okay? And we start off here with seed corn which is 64 seed corns and now we're going to what is np np is our, going to be our net product so mm -hmm. that's going to be our surplus okay so then we have our corn output is 80. okay so our output's 80 we've got 16 left over and here we got our physical rate of profit which is going to be the surplus over over sc which is this our seed 
Okay, so we're going to be measuring our, our basically our seed profit rate, if you want to put it like that, or physical rate of profit. Okay, so the first two years they fly along, and we increase our labor at the same rate as we increase our seed corn. Okay, mm -hmm. so the rate of profit is going to be twenty five percent again. Okay, let's read what he says here now. Uh, the economy is growing, but there is no core. Is no productivity growth? Output per unit of living labor and output per unit of corn input re remain unchanged. Now, in year three and four, technological progress commences. The net product now increases by fifty percent a year, while employment no longer increases. Okay, a hundred hours of living labor are performed each year. Okay, Actually, it seems pretty simple. Like everything's going up except for living labor. So if we look at this table, we see that in year three, the net product, which was 20, the surplus of the first year, that's going to increase, increase by 50% this year. The last time it only increased by, let's have a look, it only increased by 0.25 because that was how much living labor increased. But this year it's going to increase by 50%. So right. it goes up to 130. That gives us 30% profit rate. The next year it's going to increase from 30 over to 45 and we see our 130 grows into 175, and we get a 34% rate of profit. So we're, we see here, from a physicalist point of view, our rate of profit is going up, even though our, our labor is static. So our productivity, we're getting more productive, and therefore our physical surplus is getting bigger, and our physical rate of profit is increased, just like we'd expect. Instead of making it more complicated and having two or five or 56 different actual types of products being produced in the economy, we have one. And he's just looking what happens to the overall rate of profit so we can be clear what's happening. We're not getting confused by having lots of... I think we'll leave it there and we'll come back at 7.3.2 next week. And hopefully we can get Emmanuel back on for the rest of these charts. The, the temporal stuff to me is more, more and more irrefutably. Like if, if there is any bourgeois assumption in all of science, it is simultaneous valuation. It's the death knell for Marxist economics, that is. It is, it is the ur form of bourgeois ideology. In one axiom, it is the bourgeois <laughs> it, conceit. It is the fetish. It yeah. is the fetish. <laughs> like, like I, I, I struggle to think of a, of a more basic one. This simple notion of progress. More stuff means more good <laughs> but math made mathematical i wonder i wonder how much when it was first conceived as a way of doing it were they aware that would it would lead to physicalism it'd be interesting wouldn't it it'd be interesting to know if they knew what they were doing when they did it yeah like or did they realize it over time and then went with it or yeah i tend to think it's the latter I mean, I mean, yeah. I wouldn't know. There's no way to know. Well, maybe there is a way to know. If we can <laughs> read all of them. Because even if you read all of them, you'd have to you'd have to know if they were putting all their assumptions in their work. I I kind of highly doubt they would, because physicalism seems so transparently false. Yeah, but it's hidden physicalism, to, isn't uh, it? It's hidden. Well, to us, physicalism seems transparently false. To most economists, I mean, not just most Marxists, because mar marginalism is like not physicalism. So you know, like, that's that's quite true, actually. Yeah, it's a, it's an it's a very much more subjective and about relative like scarcity. So if like if your way out of Marxism or marginalism is physicalism, and everybody immediately goes, "Well, physicalism that's transparently dumb." I'm not saying that everybody would think that physicalism has transparency done, but most economists would. So if they got there, there there'd be a lot of incentive to hide that they got there. So I yeah. agree with Tom on that. But I don't know that they would have started off with that assumption because it would have been so laughed out of the room. Yeah, to be fair, they did start off as Marxists. So I mean, well, yeah, they were already laughed out of the room. <laughs>